be with you today, great to laugh with you, to sing with you, to worship with you. And now to turn our attention to the scriptures together. So let's pray together, and in a moment we'll read God's word together. Please pray with me. Father, we need your help today in our worship of you. We want to please you. We want to know you more. We want to live in a way that is honoring to you. We want our lives to reflect the reality that Jesus is supreme. And so we pray that you would help us. Help us as we look at your word. Help us as we consider what it means for us. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to do something a little different this morning as we start our sermon. I want to ask you to grab the Bible in the pew in front of you or grab your copy of the scriptures. Open it up to Colossians chapter 4. And this morning we're going to stand together as I read the scriptures. So go ahead and stand whenever you get your Bible ready. This is a symbol that Christians have done for some time. And it's just a symbol of reverence and respect for God and for his word. And we don't do it as sort of our common culture, common liturgy. But it's important to remember, we're talking about God and the God who speaks to us. And we take that really seriously, don't we? So please follow along as I read. Colossians chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, grab that pew Bible real fast, turn to page 985 and follow along. Are you there? This is what it says. The Apostle Paul writing says, continue Christians, all Christians he's referring to now, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you about, all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see to it that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. 
I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be to you. Please be seated. Don't be Archippus. Please don't be that guy. You can mirror any of the other people in this account, but don't be Archippus. You have been called to something greater. Today we conclude this journey we've been on through the book of Colossians. We've been seeing how the supremacy of Jesus is made known in our life and in our circumstances, so much so that he gives us new life and a new way of living. And as is often the case in the New Testament, Paul concludes this letter with a couple of specific instructions for all Christians, and then this final list of greetings and commendations with names attached to it. And it's hard sometimes to know what to do with this list of people that he mentions. But consider with me what's going on here. For some time now, we're looking at the big picture New Testament happenings. For some time now, the Apostle Paul has been on this mission. He's been actively pursuing the preaching of the gospel throughout the Middle East and through Southern Europe. He has been establishing churches throughout this region. And as such, these churches are now being established. People, thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus. And the power of God is being made known among them. And it's not surprising then that these Christians, many of them, are beginning to truly partner in this ministry of God, the gospel, that Paul has been engaging in. After all... To be a Christian is not just to grow in relationship with God through faith in Jesus yourself, but it's also to help others grow in relationship with God to be faithful disciples. Now, this is not easy work. As you can imagine, it takes time, it takes investment, and it even takes sacrifice. But for the vast majority of people who called themselves Christians, they had resolve. They knew that investing their lives in other people for the sake of this gospel was well worth the sacrifice that they were giving. And at first, that sacrifice maybe didn't seem all that significant. But as time went on, as time went on, they realized that following Jesus would change their social life. It would change how they spent their weekends, changed their interactions with each other. It changed how they viewed their money. In fact, everything began to change. And they were experiencing true, new life. And it was a good thing that they did. Because... Not everyone around them appreciated this message of the gospel and the proclamation that we all needed a savior and that God sent one named Jesus. And so people decided that they wouldn't be friends of these Christians anymore. Others upped the ante a little bit more and decided to ridicule them publicly. 
And still others began to persecute them very directly. So much so that we see here in Colossians that Paul was writing this letter from prison because he was persecuted for sharing the fact that God sent a Savior to forgive us of our sins and you could have access to him through faith. So imagine the dynamic with me. The times are changing. The task is important. In fact, the most important, something not just of temporary significance, but eternal significance. And the context in which this message is going out is becoming increasingly more difficult. And when things get difficult, and you are engaged in something of the utmost importance, partnership the type of partnership that emerges in that environment with people who are committed with you, these partnerships are invaluable. These relationships that are formed tend to become one of the most precious things to you. There's a deep bond, a band of brothers, a soldier's mentality that you never forget that person next to you and what you he has done for you and what you have done for him. And it creates in people, when you're struggling together in the hardest and most important things, it creates the deepest kinds of relational ties that we have in this life. The Apostle Paul certainly experienced that. He experienced some of these people and he mentions them by name. And as we look through the list, if you will, we're looking at these men that he mentions and we see the underlying reality that their new life in Christ is demonstrated by faithful partnership in the ministry of the gospel. They have new life. And the way that new life, one of the ways it's demonstrated is through partnership, the deepest kind of partnership in the ministry of the gospel. And so he mentions, verse 7, look with me, Tychicus. Tychicus is referred to as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a servant, an encourager. Onesimus is talked about as faithful and beloved. And then there's Aristarchus and Mark and Jesus. Not Jesus Christ, but Jesus who is called Justice. And these people are fellow workers. But they're not just fellow workers in anything. They're fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they encourage Paul in this. There's Epaphras, who has perhaps the highest description of him as he is a servant of Jesus. He labors in prayer and he worked very hard on behalf of the Christians there. And then there's Luke and Demas. These guys are mentioned as partners as well. We don't exactly know in what way or how their strengths rest. But the fact that they are in this type of greeting says, these, these are some of my brothers in arms. Those that I could call in the middle of the night if I had a need. The one that would hop on the plane and fly across the country for me with a moment's notice. And then, there is Archippus. Archippus 
is presumably a Christian. He's part of the team. He's experienced life change in the gospel. And yet, in the midst of the battle, Archippus sounds like he might be the type of guy that stays in the foxhole. When the going gets tough in the big game, Archippus might be the type of guy that pulls himself out of the game because he tweaked his hamstring just a little bit. In the most significant or severe situations, this partnership, this band of brothers, those walking in life and ministry, when they need him the most, he is found to be right there. He's cheering on the team. He's enjoying part of the excitement, but he's not actively participating in what he's been called to do. And so in this list of beloved, faithful partners in the gospel, and I count nine of them, Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, all with tremendous qualities. And then there's Archippus. And Paul sees it fit to remind Archippus publicly in the letter to fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. And in doing so, he serves sort of dual purpose. He recognizes that Archippus probably isn't alone in this. Not everyone is fulfilling the ministry in the Lord that they should be. Not everyone is a true and genuine faithful partner in the gospel. Though everyone should be. And so Archippus is sort of singled out as the one that is, in one way, publicly embarrassed. Like, Archippus? Seriously? And in another way to say, exhort this brother, Archippus, we need you, we want you, you're part of the team, partner with us and fulfill the ministry that God has for you. And all of this with the underlying expectation that your new life in Jesus that we've been talking about week in and week out because he is supreme, this new life is demonstrated in faithful partnership to the gospel. So my friends, don't be Archippus. Don't be the one on the sideline. And some of us hear that and we start examining our own life situations and we rightfully begin to wonder, well, have I been a faithful partner in the gospel? Am I being a faithful partner in the gospel right now? The question becomes, well, how do I do that? How is genuine partnership shown in my life? And the New Testament gives us a number of expressions and examples of this, but this text gives very two specific examples, and then I think a third is implied. Genuine partnership in the gospel is shown in your life in at least these two ways. We see in verses 2 to 4, prayer, and verses 5 to 7, in your interaction with outsiders, meaning personal evangelism. So let's look at those two more specifically. Starting with prayer. Consider with me verse 2 and on. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Now the idea of 
continuing steadfastly in prayer means that we're supposed to be people who are devoted to prayer. It's not the sort of tack on of my spiritual life, but I'm attached to it. I persevere continually in it, even when I don't feel like it or when it's hard. Because prayer is the mechanism that God has put in place for us to communicate with him, to express worship to him, to rely on him, to submit to him. And spiritual intimacy for you comes in this way. Now I know that if I were to ask in the congregation today a number of you to describe what your prayer activity or prayer life might look like, we'd probably have a wide variety of answers. We're at different places in our spiritual walk. We have different levels of understanding or commitment and even different comfort levels with prayer. Some of us would probably, if we're real honest, would say, I really only pray if I need something. Or I only pray at meals. Some of us might even embarrassingly say, I really only pray when I'm sort of bargaining with God. You know, those, what I like to call a barroom bet with God. You get into a very difficult situation and you say, God, if you get me out of this pinch, then I will stop doing X, Y, or Z. We've all been there. And I imagine that most of us or all of us have prayed a prayer like that at some time. I imagine that some of us sort of give up those arrow prayers, you know, those quick little bullets up to God, asking for help, asking for joy, asking for happiness. And some of us, and I know in in our church that we have some of us who are quiet, persistent prayer warriors set aside, focus time every single day to pray that God would meet some of our needs and pray for the people around you. One of the repeated expectations and hopes for Christians in the New Testament is to pray. There's a number of examples. Let me read just a couple for you. In Romans chapter 12, it says, Never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Ephesians 6.18 And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. Philippians 4.6 Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Prayer is a central part of our Christian life. I remember when I was a child, playing a game with my dad. Actually, my twin brother Chris and I would play this game with my dad. Where my dad would grab some pennies and close his hand tightly. And we would hop up on his lap and we would try to pry loose his fingers. And my dad is a big guy, big, strong, manly hand. And Chris and I would hop up and we would just wrestle to try to get one finger open at a time. Maybe you play that with your kids or with your grandkids. And if you do, you know that according to the rules of international finger opening... 
that once a finger is opened, it cannot be closed again. And so one by one, the fingers are wrestled open. And as they are, we would snatch the pennies out of his hand, push him away, and run the other direction in laughter. Delight at the treasure that we have rescued. Just kids. Just a game. Sometimes I think that when we come to God, we really approach him like children who are simply trying to get the pennies out of his hand. As if we could pry away the things that we want. We say things like, Lord, I need a passing grade, so help me to study. Lord, I need a job. Lord, my mother is ill. We reach for the pennies. And when God grants the request, we push the hand away and we run away with delight that we received our prize, our treasure for which we wrestled. And all the while, we forget the significance that more important than the pennies is the fact that God's hand is right there all along. And that's what prayer is all about. Because you can't do this on your own. Time after time I sit with people in troubled situations and they're looking for a way out of their situation and they realize that they're completely helpless in it. They're powerless. They can't do it. They need to depend on another. And that type of dependence is expressed in prayer. And the more you begin to understand your reality, the more you begin to understand God, it's not just the things of the deepest trouble that you can't do on your own. It's all kinds of things that you can't do on your own. And so that dependence is expressed in prayer. And if you don't know how to pray, or you don't know what to pray for, this text gives us just a couple of quick instructions. Look with me. It says that we pray being watchful in it. Now to be watchful in prayer simply means that you're alert, you're looking out for the ways that God is engaging or answering your prayer so that when he does answer, you're not the one that just sort of pushes him away, running away in delight. You're not the one who was healed by Jesus and never comes back to say thank you. In fact, you have an ongoing disposition of thankfulness. For God's gracious provision. Next we see that it's right to pray for open doors. That is to repeatedly ask God for opportunities to share about him with other people. Paul asks for prayer for that. And I often meet people and as we begin to talk about the Christian life, the idea of evangelism to them is scary, it's daunting, it's off-putting, or it's just not practical in nature. And they say things like, well, I know that I'm supposed to talk about God and Jesus with others, but I never really have the opportunity. To which I respond, well, have you asked? Because I've never heard of someone who has asked God for opportunities to share their faith and he hasn't answered that prayer. And if you start asking that prayer, buckle up. 
Because you're going to start to see all kinds of opportunities for you to be a mouthpiece for God that you probably hadn't seen before. Whether he's providing them for the first time or you were blinded to them, Paul says, pray for an open door to declare the mystery of Christ. If you're not asking for God for those opportunities, my encouragement to you would be it's time to start. The famous missionary to India, William Carey, once said that secret, fervent prayer lies at the root of all personal godliness. Sir Isaac Newton, describing prayer, once said, I can take my telescope and look millions of miles into space, but I can go away to my room, and in prayer I get nearer to God in heaven than, if, than I can if I was assisted by all of the telescopes on earth. Some of you are saying, Pastor Nick, that sounds pretty good. I would like a prayer life like that. But I'm not sure how to start. I've had so many false starts with consistent prayer in my life that it just it seems daunting. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to block out my surroundings. I don't know what to do. And if you're in that place, if you're struggling to get traction in this, I would give you two simple encouragements. Number one is to start simple. Focus on five minutes a day. Everybody can do that. Five minutes of focused time to do nothing but talk to God and or listen to God. And when you become comfortable with Five minutes, sooner or later, you'll find that five minutes isn't enough. Five minutes very quickly turns to ten minutes. Ten minutes can very quickly turn to more as you meditate on what God has said in his scriptures, as you ask him for the things of your heart, and as you worship him in prayer. And you'll enjoy it more and more. Encouragement number two would be, you know, one of the best ways to learn how to pray is to pray with other people. I think I've learned more about prayer by praying with friends and colleagues than I have out of reading any book about prayer. Prayer is one of those things you learn through action. And so my encouragement to you would be, Christians, pray together. Seek opportunities to pray together, whether that's the college moms group that was talked about, Beth mentioned earlier today, whether it's the Wednesday night prayer group here, whether it's the Sunday morning prayer group that meets before the service back here in the fireside room with the elders, or whether it's you have lunch with a buddy of yours from church and you spend five to ten minutes of your time praying. Don't be afraid to pray together. You will be encouraged, they will be encouraged, and you will learn how to more adequately pray. Prayer, central to the Christian life, one of the ways in which we partner together. Very quickly, what's the second way this text has us partnering together? That is sharing our faith with outsiders. Verse 5 says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So not only do we pray for open doors, but when God opens them, we step through them and share our lives with people 
for the sake of them coming to a knowledge of Jesus. Now, I know that the idea of evangelism is not appealing to the culture around us because to the world around us, when they hear of Christians evangelizing, they think, oh, those Christians, they are proselytizing people. Which carries with it this harsh connotation of, I want something from you for my personal gain. But let's just be clear. Let's be on the same page about this. If you're a believer in Jesus for your salvation, then you've come to an understanding, whether, no matter how shallow or deep, that the most important thing in this life, the greatest power in the world, the most life-transforming reality is the love of God through the person of Jesus Christ. It dominates me. And as such... I know that it is the best for not just me, for all of humankind, because God says so. And so when I open my mouth and I have a conversation with somebody, with somebody about Jesus, there is no motive of getting a bigger group, of convincing you to think like me, of trying to get you to be in our power structure or political entity. There's one motive. I care about you. The most important thing in this life is a relationship with God. I care about you enough to tell you about it. Now notice how the text says we do this. We do this wisely, walk in wisdom. Let our, we do it graciously. Let our speech be gracious. This means that we look for the right opportunities to engage in tactful conversations. Tactful conversation. And I think wisdom in sharing your faith with people looks different from relationship to relationship and even times and seasons of our cultural life. I mean, there might have been a time, I kind of doubt it, but there might have been a time where people would actually respond to the guy who walks around with the big placard on the front of his body that says, you're going to hell unless you put your faith in Jesus. Ask me how. And yet, there are still people that do that. If you go to Fenway Park in Boston, for any Red Sox home game, there's a 70-plus-year-old man who walks around with a sign that says, Just that. Now, his motives are pure. And I believe that they are indeed driven by love. But there's no wisdom or tact or graciousness in that type of interaction. I mean, I think that we, I think Christians, I think we complicate evangelism so much by trying to come up with theories and plans. I mean, we talk about the most important things in our life with our friends and our family all the time. What do we do? What are our kids up to? Somebody's sick. I'm struggling in my job. We talk about these things with people, but we don't talk about the most important thing. And that's our relationship with Jesus. And so Paul says, look for opportunities to engage. Make the best use of the time. There's a sense of urgency here. The days are short. We have limited opportunity. And so where gospel opportunity comes, engage. Because your new life in Christ is demonstrated by faithful partnership in the gospel. One part of that faithful partnership is prayer. One part is evangelism. And I think the implied third part here in this text, is that we faithfully partner in the gospel in specific 
ministries. When you look at the list of men mentioned in verses 7 through 18, they had specific ministries that they were engaged in. If you think about our church, you probably realize that it takes some hundreds of partners in ministry for us to continue to grow in the Lord together. I think of those who come early on Sunday morning to get their Sunday school class ready for the first hour. I mean, to have the responsibility to teach a young person about God is an awesome calling. And so I get here about 6.15 to 6.30 on Sunday mornings, and if I'm wandering the building and I see a little bit later in the morning one of those lights pop on back in that corner or that corner, I think to myself, there's a partner. Maybe they're like Aristarchus. I don't know. But I know that they may need more help. I think of those who are getting the coffee ready and the facility ready for you so that this would be a warm and hospitable environment in which we can worship God and continue to encourage each other. And I think, partner. Maybe they're like Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Think of Mike upstairs, working the sound, lights, computer this morning, who comes every Sunday, long before most of us are here. Some of us aren't out of bed yet. Just to seamlessly make a variety of things happen up here, so there's no distractions in our worship of God. And I think, partner. I think of those who give financially over and above their straightforward tithe. As a pastor, I don't know who they are. I don't want to know who they are, but I know they exist. These are people who are so enraptured by the person of God and the grace that they have received that they continue to grow in the grace of giving. They see a need, they meet it. And I think to myself, partner. Maybe they're like Jesus, who is called Justice small group leaders, gospel project leaders, Awana teachers, those who meet the physical needs of other Christians through Save to Serve, those who invest in the lives of teenagers through our student ministries. Maybe they're like Luke or Demas or Nympha who has a church in her house. Partners in this great work of God. There are many who meet to pray in our church on Wednesday night or even before church here on Sunday morning. They believe what John Bunyan once said, that you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Or what Charles Spurgeon said, whenever God determines to do a great thing, he first sets his people to pray. And so they're there faithfully asking for God's presence to reign among us, for the Spirit to speak clearly through his word, for this sanctuary to be filled with a sense of encouragement and conviction, for life change to occur. And I wonder if they are like Epaphras, who, as the text says, 
struggles on your behalf in his prayers. And I think to myself, those are partners. Here's the point. New life in Christ is demonstrated by faithful partnership. And my friends, what we are doing here is something of the utmost importance. It's of the greatest consequence. It's hard, it's rewarding, it's difficult, and we need more partners. We need people who are willing to devote time and energy and effort to step outside of their comfort zone. We need partners to give financially. We need people who are all in in the ministry of the gospel because those are the types of people that God uses to change a church and to change a community. And I believe what many of you have been expressing for some months is that this church is sort of, it's not there yet, but it's nearing the precipice of God doing a great work among this people and in this community. And that happens when people are wholly devoted to him. And so partner with us. Partner with us because we worship a great God. Partner with us because you've received Jesus and he's given you new life. Partner with us because as Colossians chapter 2 says, you've received him and you want to continue to walk in him. Partner with us because you want to see what God would do when there's a people who are wholly devoted to him. Partner with us because you do not want to be Archippus. Please don't be Archippus. Don't be that guy. Don't be the one who sits on the sidelines when you should be in the game. Don't be the one who's called out for not fulfilling his or her ministry. Don't be like Archippus. Because life in Christ, new life in Christ, is demonstrated in faithful partnership. And we need partners. And as you do partner, you will find that some of the most rewarding relationships that you have are those that you share with people who are partnering in the gospel. Now, I know that everybody's life situation is different. And I know some of you say, Nick, I'm going to partner in prayer. I'm going to partner in evangelism. Thank you. Not thank you for me, but thank you on behalf of the ministry of God. Beyond that, if you are looking for specific ways to partnership, maybe you've just been waiting to be asked. I know sometimes in a church as big as ours, it's just easy to say, nobody ever asked me. I'm asking. We're not in any way in a desperate situation, but it would be incredible to be a church in which people, we're not asking people to do two or three or four different things, and therefore people experience burnout and get stressed and whatever else. They don't have the right margins in their life. Wouldn't it be incredible if we were a church who had everybody doing one thing at least, and therefore somebody would come and say, well, I want to partner, but there's no place for me to partner. Show me how, help me how. And we have to say, well, sorry, Amy, I know you're doing this and that, and you're going to have to give up one of those things because Joe wants to partner now. Wouldn't that type of dynamic in a church be incredible? And it's possible when there's faithful partners in the ministry. 
And so if you're here today and you want to know specifically some of the tangible ways you can partner, in your compass today, there's a little list. These are some of the ministry needs that we have right now. Like I said, it takes hundreds of partners. And every week, people are saying, this is the most important thing. And I want to be a part of it. Consider how you might serve. How you might increase your commitment to God and to these people around you. How you might become a more faithful partner. And as Pastor Chris comes and the worship team comes and prays, You'll have a moment where you can respond, if you're ready to respond today, to that charge. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we have seen through the book of Colossians, you are a great and mighty God, and your son Jesus is supreme over all things. God, we thank you for the new life that he gives. And we thank you that what we have been called to as followers of him is not something that's merely casual. It's not something that is a take it or leave it dynamic. It's not even something that only demands partial commitment. But that because you are great, you demand our entire commitment. And so I pray for each one now as in the quietness of our hearts we consider what kind of partner in the ministry of the gospel we are. Some of us are faithful, some of us are unfaithful, some of us fall in between. Lord, we do not compare ourselves to those around us, but we simply ask you humbly, help us to partner faithfully and show us how you want us to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.